Good morning, brothers and sisters. I have to be honest with you, I was sorely tempted not to preach on the topic today, which is, of course, the feast, Corpus Christi. I was really far more tempted to preach on a specific line in the first reading today. If you know anything about that story, Abram, who eventually becomes Abraham, God changes his name, but this time he's just Abram, has just won a great victory. And so he goes to the only priest he knows, Melchizedek. We believe that Melchizedek was actually one of the initial children of Adam and Eve because he was so old, hundreds and hundreds of years old. And he went to Melchizedek and he asked Melchizedek to thank God on his behalf because he's the priest. So what does Melchizedek do? He offers a sacrifice of bread and wine to God. That's the sacrifice he offers. That's why Jesus' priesthood is in the line of Melchizedek because of this similar sacrifice. But after the sacrifice is offered to God, what does Abram do? He gives a tenth of everything to the priest. I thought this is a great day to preach on tithing, right? What you can give to Jesus, to his church, to me. But obviously that's, that's not the, the topic today, so I won't be preaching on that. I'll be preaching on what Jesus gives to you, his own body, blood, soul, and divinity. But I wanted to focus the message particularly on the way that our Lord gives himself, the way that our Lord makes himself available to us. And for us here at St. Dorothy's, we have this beautiful image, this relief on the front of our altar of what you would think was the Lamb of God. Now, makes sense, it looks like a lamb, and we know that Jesus is the Lamb of God because he sacrificed himself for the forgiveness of our sins. It's obviously he and the Father and the Holy Spirit who set up the Old Testament sacrifices of the lambs and the goats for the forgiveness of sins, all in anticipation of Jesus. He's the true lamb, the one who actually takes away sin. So you'd think that this is the Lamb of God, but you would be wrong. This image up here is not the Lamb of God. I mean, it kind of is, sure, but, but it's also actually not called that. According to the scriptures, it has a different name. And I want to read to you from the book of Revelation what you should actually call this image on the front of our altar. This is from chapter 5. John, the beloved disciple, who gave us the clearest teachings on the Lamb of God, on Jesus as the sacrificial Lamb, it was he who received, near the end of his life, this divine revelation where he was taken up to heaven. So if you want to read the book of Revelations, obviously it's, it's full of this vision that he saw, and then he wrote it down for us. And in part of the vision, this is what he witnesses. He says, I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who sat on the throne. That's God the Father. It had writing on both sides and was sealed with seven seals. We actually have an image of that scroll up here under the lamb as well. It's not the lamb, but you know what I mean. Then I saw a mighty angel who proclaimed in a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to examine it. I shed many tears 
because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to examine it. One of the elders said to me, Do not weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed, enabling him to open the scroll with its seven seals. Then I saw, standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb that seemed to have been slain. Now the angel that speaks to John and tells him not to worry, he does not call this the Lamb of God. He calls him the Lion of the tribe of Judah. That's what he calls him. Even though when John sees him, when he sees Jesus in heaven, he looks like a lamb. I think if you're anything like me, you would seem to think that maybe this angel has some sight issues. Maybe he, he can't see, actually. Maybe he's blind. We don't know. He's just confused. Obviously, the word of God is not confused. The angel spoke correctly. So why would our Lord set up for us seemingly contradictory expressions? He's called the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he looks like a lamb who was slain. Now, it's God who created the entire universe and everything in it, so we understand that if he, the creator, is trying to combine seemingly contradictory ideas, he's got a good reason for it. So why is Jesus called the lion of the tribe of Judah? Well, the lion was the symbol of the tribe of Judah, that's the simple explanation, but also the lion, as anybody knows, is the king of beasts. It's, he's at the top of his food chain. Nobody eats lions, lions eat everybody else. That's what we mean by that. He's the king of beasts. That's the way God made lions. They're absolute top predators. So oftentimes throughout history, we have had ruling families or kings take the lion as their symbol. Dominance, power, authority. I'm at the top of this food chain. You know, you're the peons. Well, this tradition began with Israel, began with Israel, and the kings in Israel always had the lion from the tribe of Judah as their symbol. Jesus, we know, is the king of kings, and he is a child of Judah, of Israel. And so the lion uniquely belongs to him as a symbol because it reveals his power. He is truly the top dog, in this case, top cat. Because as God, he rules over all things. God is all-powerful, all-powerful. But even as a man, he is superior to all other men because he is perfectly holy and always obeys the will of his heavenly Father. So both as God and man, he is superior to all others. Therefore, he is the king of kings, the ruling one, and the lion is his name. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he wants you to think of a lion when you hear that name. He wants you to be intimidated. Like you don't just walk up to a wild lion and think, I'm going to pet this. Hey, kitty, 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 kitty. Yeah. People like that deserve to be removed from the pecking order. So, 
We have a natural fear of the power, the danger of a lion. And the scriptures are full of instances in which we're taught to fear God. In fact, fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And you should fear him. You should fear his kingliness. You should fear his power. Absolutely, definitely, you should. And that's why he's the lion. But he is also the lamb. And this is where we have to try to resolve this seeming contradiction. Because lions eat lambs, not the other way around. So how can Christ be both? You see, our Lord is trying to reveal to us a deeper mystery of who he is. Humans have never had a problem believing that God is all-powerful. That kind of goes with the territory. But we do struggle oftentimes to recognize how gentle God is, how loving, and how merciful. That's why he sent his son into the world. That's why he suffered and died sacrificially in this way. That even though I am, he would say, the lion of the tribe of Judah, I come to you as a lamb. Gently, in weakness, just to draw close to you, to be near you. He doesn't want to scare us off. But our Lord is both of these things. And we see this most beautifully in the Eucharist. Our Lord has made himself food for us. That's how close he wants to be with us. He wants to dwell within us. And so to facilitate that, he transforms bread and wine into his body, blood, soul, and divinity so that he could dwell within you, not just spiritually, he can do that through baptism, but even physically, where you become one flesh with him, a holy marriage. And he knows he has to do this very gently because you're skittish like lambs. You get scared very easily. So he approaches you like one. Now today is also Father's Day. And I think this is a very important lesson for all of us fathers. Because on some level, rightly so, we like the idea of God as the lion. Because... We want to be the lions of our families, right? That's what we want. We are the heads of our homes. That is God's design. And in that sense, we are the king, the little, little K king. We are meant to rule, to govern in God's name, the family that he has placed under us. But because of sin, more often than not, we rule like a sinful lion, my way, or I intimidate you into doing it my way. We roar, and we get angry, and we complain, because, hey, look, I'm in charge. You better do it my way, or you're going to regret it. We instill fear in order to try to increase obedience. That's not always a bad thing. I'm not condemning it outright. I'm just saying... That's not how our Lord does it. 
He could have come into the world that way and simply intimidated us to believe in him and to accept him, just revealing his power. I mean, he is God. Just manifest his dominance over everyone. Wipe out his enemies with a wave of his hand. And the whole world would have bowed at his feet. So why didn't he? Because that's not who he is. Just because he has power. That's not his greatest attribute. His greatest attribute is his humility and his love. And men, that's the example we should take. If we are to be conformed to Christ, then we need to learn that even though we are the lions of our home, when push comes to shove, we should act like a lamb. Now I, many of you know this, I used to have a very serious anger problem. Not, it's been a long time. But back in the day, over 20 years ago, I had quite a temper. When I was a religious brother, they actually sent me to anger management counseling. That's how bad it was. Now, you won't be surprised, I got angry that they were sending me. <laughs> I had a problem, okay? And for a whole year, I went to this psychologist, good, holy Catholic man, brilliant guy, he really helped me. I don't have a problem anymore. But I had to learn some techniques to deal with my anger and figure out why I was getting angry all the time. However, for the last 20 years, whenever I get angry, because I still do, of course, people get angry, just not uncontrollably, Whenever I get angry, whenever something makes me upset, I don't do anything about it while I'm angry. Whatever it is, even if it needs to be corrected, I wait until I'm calm because I've learned not to trust myself when I'm angry, when I feel that intense emotion. And maybe it's justified. Maybe the person needs to be corrected. But when I feel that intense emotion, I've learned I can't trust myself. I'm not always thinking rationally. I'm certainly not thinking charitably at that moment. And so I've learned I don't, I don't do anything. I don't correct. I don't discipline. I put it off till later once I'm calm. And then I may say something. I think this is the example that Christ gives us. Not only because of his willingness to suffer and to sacrifice himself for the sins of others, but also because of this one story in the gospel. You all remember the famous story in which he made that whip and then he went into his father's house and he overturned the money changers' tables, you know, and he, and he told everybody to get the animals out of the temple. He was clearly upset. He was clearly angry, the gospel tells us. But we oftentimes miss a detail that's given before this incident. You see, the whole story goes this way. Jesus went into the temple one day, and he saw all of the money changers and the people selling birds and other animals for sacrifice, and he got angry. So he left the temple, he walked over one of the hills and went to Bethany. He had some friends there, and he stayed there the night. I always picture him making that cord whip, thinking, oh, I'm going to get him tomorrow. Yeah, they're going to get it right. Obviously, he didn't do that. But he did make the cord. It says, the scriptures say he made that cord out of, out of a leather, and that probably helped him calm down. So he spent the night in prayer making this whip. The next day, he's calm. He's collected. Now he goes back to the temple, 
and he disciplines. But he wasn't angry anymore at that time. He approached it with a cool head. You know, unless you're disciplining your dog or your cat, for the most part, you don't have to do it right away. Even a child, I mean, unless they're very young, okay, two and under, you can discipline right away, but usually be gentle with them anyway. But if they're older than that, you can wait an hour, go into your bedroom, Dad, calm down. Wives, remind your husbands of this homily when they start getting angry, and you know them. Say, "Uh uh-uh, remember what Father Miller said. Go into your room, make a whip, and then you can come out and beat them. Right? That's what Father Miller said. No, no, okay. Now, I, I will say you shouldn't beat your children. You can spank them, right? Corporal punishment is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. All the studies, psychological studies show that. And, of course, the Bible says you can do it, so that's, that's the real important reason. But you should never do it when you're angry. We men need to act more like our Lord. Look how far he is willing to go in order to draw close to his children, to his beloved. He's willing to become weak and vulnerable for you. That's the model we as the heads of our homes should show to our wives and our children. We, by God's design, are the first to act like Christ in the home. And we'll be judged more severely if we don't. But wives and children, pray for your husbands and fathers. We need that extra grace. I need that grace. But we do give thanks to God for fatherhood. Because everything that Jesus Christ shows us, everything that he does, all of it is an imitation of God the Father. That's what he teaches. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is how our God loves. This is the Lamb of God, but we know him as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.